502, guys. We probably ought to get started. I hate to start too early because I want to give people time to join, but... We, how about we introduce Jason very slowly okay. as people log on. Hello, oh. everyone. Go ahead, Kate. You, you do want to make some introductory remarks? I'm just going to say hello to Jason. Jason, hello. Thank you for being here. Everybody, uh, <laughs> those of you that are joining us tonight, we have Dr. Jason Gunderson, um, and he's going to talk a little bit about lots of things. You've had quite the... Um, career and since you've been in Pemba and that has that been 10 years uh, 14 Four, no it hasn't yes has it uh, actually yes yes oh my goodness okay so I know. 14 years we'll ago Jason was a babe yeah. in the woods he was one of he had been one of our youngest Pembas that's not the case anymore Jason we have younger doctors who come through now but at the time you were like super super boy when you came through well, that's Dr. Mansoor now. So that, uh, that's it. That's Dr. Mansoor. Yeah. But we are very glad to have Jason thank, um, here tonight. Thank you for making time for this. And Don is going to do the uh, the big welcome. Talk about I'm what you've been doing. I'm going to just do a very quick introduction yeah. and let folks know where Jason's been and what he's done, at least some of what he's done. Uh, he's been around in healthcare for over 20 years. And as we mentioned, he was in the class of 2007, 14 years ago. <sighs> and he's going to talk to us tonight about what you do with 14 years after PEMBA. Um, he was at Team Health for a while. So those of you at Team Health, there's, there's a future after Team Health, although uh, Team Health is a pretty good deal. And he was a president of hospitalists and of post-acute services. He did a lot of work in uh, managed care. In, in that position. Uh, and I, I was surprised, Jason, and you might want to talk just a little bit about this, but you were uh, you had the uh, bundle payments for care improvement uh, activity that you did too. But a number of different uh, or, uh, ACOs, Medicare Advantage plans, et cetera. Trained at the University of Connecticut, did his family medicine at uh, UMass. And as I mentioned, he was in the class of 2007. Uh, it was, and, that was, and Tom and I were talking about what a fun class that was. Yeah. So uh, without further ado, we Jason, too much fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll turn it over to you, Jason. All right. Thanks thank for joining you. us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, everybody. Actually, I saw a couple of names of people that I knew on here. So um, let me pull my screen up and make sure it's working. Yes, good. All right. So uh, I'll give you, I'll, I'll add a little bit to my background. So I went to uh, med school with the idea I was going to do rural primary care, which clearly never worked out. Um, I did 10 years in academics um, up at UMass, kind of building hospital services and teaching and the like. And then I left and went to the dark side at Team Health, where I um, started as chief medical officer and kind of worked my way up and did a whole bunch of different jobs there uh, that was kind of additive, everything from hospitalist to surgicalist to post-acute. And while I was there, we did a lot of work in the managed care space and um, working with everybody from, uh, we did a big uh, Kaiser uh, repatriation program where we would 
help patients that landed in non-Kaiser facilities get back to Kaiser facilities. We did a big program in Southeast Florida where we managed patients on behalf of the payers. So instead of being a hospitalist that works for the hospital, we were a hospitalist program that worked for Humana and United and all the Medicare Advantage plans. And we did about 150,000 cases a year there. And we topped out that program at nine and a half percent fee for service. So we were essentially all case rates and capitation for the payers. And it was great. You know, we had a the BPCI program for team. And uh, it was great, had a lot of fun there and then decided that I wanted to do a little bit more. Um, I figured out that I would never want to be in a hospital or in a SNF. And so Um, but I had the, the pleasure of being hospitalized in a hospital where I was on staff to the hospitalist service that I built um, and, you know, used to work at. And I got to be readmitted and I got to go through all of the trials and tribulations of being a patient, which I do not recommend. Team care. Chief Medical Officer, and we are a ish uh, group being home, did a lot of home health, durable medical equipment, home infusion, sleep studies, and several years ago migrated into the care management space. And so in that model, which is a majority of what we do now, we work with health plans and take we guarantee savings. So we have all different models that we get paid on, but we basically take risk on helping patients that get admitted to a acute care facility, go home and stay home. So when people go home and stay home, we make money, everyone's happy. When people go to SNFs and ERFs and LTAGs and get readmitted, we don't do that because that's what we're there to try to work on. So when Don called me and asked me to talk about this, you know, I spent the majority of my life trying to manage people in facilities and now try to do everything I can to keep people out of facilities. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about how that kind of comes together and the kind of maze of what post-acute care is. I know that this got sent out to folks that aren't in PEMBA. So if I say too much about doctors, it's only because I'm guiding this a little bit towards my colleagues and the PEMBA program. Um, and so goal of this is to talk a little bit about kind of market trends and largely about this <coughs> concept of care in the home, which is that most you know, it sounds like the obvious, you know, when you get sick, you kind of want to get taken care of at home and not be in a bunch of facilities. Uh, a bunch of commentary on fee-for-service versus value-based arrangements. And I was trying to find a different term for value-based because it annoys me because everyone uses that term as kind of a throwaway term and don't really know what that really means. So I'll talk about that. I'll talk about navigating the post-acute space, which is after a hospitalization, or, um, you know, how we kind of work through getting people home and, and kind of working through that. And then a bit of COVID. And I put COVID in there because I think it's been defining. I know everyone has COVID fatigue, but I'll kind of talk a little bit about that towards the end. So this is a great slide in my view, because if you think about it, this is kind of where everything moves. You look at a patient in the hospital, it gets discharged. They go through this myriad of rehab, sniff, readmits to the hospital, ALF, assisted living, 
ILF, independent living, docs, long-term care, DME, home, get readmitted. Every single one of those movements is a financial transaction. And I don't mean to talk a lot about money, but I think, listen, money drives where everything goes. And so if you look at it, it's just a myriad of confusion. And every single one of those folks is a different company and managing under a different guideline. And how we navigate through that is really confusing. I was lucky to be able to skip the majority of that in the middle, but just even navigating, trying to get my meds reconciled was like, no, 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 I'm not on that. Like it, it takes a lot of work. And so it creates a lot of confusion. It creates a lot of cost, and no one really owns the whole process. And that's really where I think we've, you know, been working towards at CareCentrics. And what I've been looking at is how do we navigate people land in a hospital? How do we help navigate them through that system? So I think I'll pull a couple of slides from Kaiser Family Foundation and y'all can get my email and have the slides. And if you have questions, uh, shoot them to me. But this was one that they put together, which just looked at Medicare spending. And so I'll talk a lot about Medicare and Medicare Advantage, which is where most of the work we're doing right now. Although I tell you with COVID, and not to get to the end before I get started, Medicaid is managed Medicaid is probably the fastest growing segment of the market. And COVID just amplified that because state budgets are under pressure and there's a lot of expense there. So the total Medicare spending, we all know this, is just on a launch pad going north in the completely the wrong direction. And so how we're going to look at trying to manage that is going to be really critical. In reference to this talk and kind of what I talk about, which was this was an, a, a study that was done again by Kaiser Family Foundation Independent that just looked at costs where you had an inpatient stay with no sniff versus an inpatient stay with a sniff. So you can see if you're community residents in the middle here, substantial greater cash outlay out of your pocket, a little bit more on a premium in terms of if you have a sniff stay, it's just more expensive. And then if you're someone that's already part of a long-term care facility, ERF LTAC, or sorry, ERF ALF or long-term care, substantially higher. And so if you just look at it across the spectrum from Medicare standpoint, and this is pure um, Medicare fee-for-service. This does not include all the Medicare Advantage plans. And I guess I should comment, for those that don't know the difference, in Medicare, you just get your benefits from Medicare and everything's paid on a fee-for-service and you follow the government. In a Medicare Advantage plan, the plan, Humana, or you know whoever you're working with, WellCare, Florida Blue, takes that premium and then they agree to manage it. And so they provide added services and they take risk on trying to move that forward. I think Medicare Advantage is really kind of where the future is. That's my editorial opinion, because there's a lot more tools and tricks Actually, tricks is a bad term for that. Tools that people can bring to the market to help really kind of control costs and provide added benefits to, to patients as they go forward. So I think this is, I mean, a lot of the stuff I'll put in here, you'll say, oh, yeah, duh, Gunderson, we kind of get that. Like, it's not, it's intuitive, but yet it exists, right? So we all know that it's more expensive, but we haven't really been able to move the needle on it. And so I'll bring up a lot of stuff, which I think is like, kind of overly obvious, but we haven't really been able to move the needle on that. So obviously more expensive stay, going to a sniff than going home. So we did some reviews and there's references in here. A lot of this comes from advisory board, which we do a lot of work with, which um, 
you know, I'm going to talk a little bit more about care in the home, which is this whole concept that, you know, people want to get as much care as they have at home and not be in facilities. So you'll see aging, aging U.S. population. We all know that that's coming. The boomers are aging. People are living longer. We're having more and more patients in that age group that are going to require care. So we're going to see more demand for care in the home. Payers, especially Medicare Advantage, who are on the hook for these things, are really looking to drive care to the lowest cost setting. If you look back on that last slide, we just know that it is lower cost in facility being able to manage the components. Um, technologies and some of the changes in reimbursement, in other words, how we're paying people and what we're willing to pay for at home is gonna drive more care to the home. I'm gonna skip ahead to COVID and I'll make a comment about telemedicine. Telemedicine lived in the stone ages until COVID hit. And all of a sudden in two weeks, we went from no doctor could do telemedicine and get paid to licensure was open. We found a way to get paid and whoop, everybody did it. You know, I had telemedicine visits with my PCP. It was great, but it, we've struggled with it. And so a lot of this COVID stuff has really kind of moved things forward. Um, you'll see over here, growth and care in the home. These are different subsections that are gonna continue to grow about where all the dollars are being spent. You'll just see telehealth is growing. There's a more of greater demand for the market. There's a lot of people trying to figure out how better to do this. You'll hear all sorts of terms moved around now, hospital at home, SNP at home, uh, advents of companies like Dispatch Health that use uh, different alternative care providers to provide care in the home. So just a huge demand growth. And we're gonna see in the lower left here that we're just gonna see fee-for-service spend just continue to increase. And so spending increase is not gonna to continue to, to work for us. And so we have to find ways this market is really kind of defined that people are looking to do more care in the home. We need to find a better way to do that. And I'll talk a bit about, I'm gonna get kind of beat the drum a little bit about care in the home and I'll kind of go through why that's so difficult or why people default to using some of the facilities we do. And then you'll see just the, the growth is really high in our, elderly, in our elderly patients. Another study that we pulled out of Health Affairs, and this again looks at uh, home health care rising all the way through 2028, you'll see, tried to highlight it with my little blue arrow, but home health care is just continuing to grow over the next 10 years. We're just gonna see more and more of it. Um, and then some of that rebound uh, post COVID. We launched into a uh, kind of an independent study, I guess you call it a study, uh, report. And it's, a, it's the health at home report. We, did, we hired some folks and we did a review and this has consumers and this also has health plan executives. And it was really just to kind of go out there and say, you know, we have a perception that people want to have more care at home and that, that it's better for patients that it's more cost effective, but you know, that's our own opinion. So let's go out and just start asking people what they think. So it's a subset of, of consumers and health plan execs. Um, there's a link to it in one of my slides so you can grab it. If you need it, I can always send it to you, but just had some obvious. And again, this is that whole obvious, in my opinion, the obvious, when you ask people, People, how you know, what patients, where would they want to have care? 63% say, yeah, I'd prefer to get whatever services I have at my at my house. Like one of my friends who I, you know, might ascribe to some of my crazy hobbies had to have a hip replacement and 
he wanted to go right home. And so he had it all arranged and went surgery straight to home, had all the PT, the bed was available. It was seamless. But, you know, for a lot of people, it doesn't work that way. But people want it, but we saw 40% of patients then turn around and say, hey, we, yeah, I don't, you know, I, I expect I'll get care at home. So there's a big gap between what people want and what people actually expect they're going to get. And that's due to a lot of the forces that I'll kind of mention in a minute that kind of drive people away from home into those other buildings. Health plan executives who pay all the bills. And as I mentioned earlier, I think when you, you know, for lack of a better term, you follow the money and where things get paid, you th see how things go forward. So 97% of them said care in the home is better for both the payer and the patient. They like to use insurers and members, but payers and patients. 95% um, felt it was more cost effective. And then 95% thought some idea of coaching and, and care extension in the home can help primary care reach and do a better job. And I'll talk a bit about this. And this is where I think one of the gaps is that occurs in how we end up where we are today. And then uh, another study that I put in here, and then I'm going to get into my thoughts and not just on studies. Um, this is just some thoughts on uh, Medicare Advantage figures highlighting just big push towards all the benefits. Again, Medicare Advantage benefits providing services to patients so that they can end up in those um, facilities where they tend to end up. I always, it's always better to do these in person because you can have more interaction than on Zoom, but it's been 14 months of Zoom. Um, so I call this our historical three, um, three-legged approach to healthcare. And somehow my video turned off. Not that you all needed to see me, but, uh, and this has been a frustrating part for me. And even when I was at Team Health, I was super frustrated by this. It's this idea that we had payers, clinician groups, you know, doctors and the rest, whether they're employed or independent. And then you had like all the buildings and the providers, which were hospitals, healthcare providers and SNFs. And everybody would like lobby with one or the other, like the health plan would have a plan with the hospital, but never have the physician group in it. The physician group, like I used to work for Humana and you know, we used to, for lack of a better term, piss off the hospitals because we were constantly working there was there's not to this day been a great alignment of payer clinician groups and hospitals and SNFs and provider groups, post-acute, home health, all the rest. Patients kind of get wobbled in that. It's always been like one negotiating with the other. And to me, that's where we've just struggled for so long is that we've had these negotiations and it's not been all parts because people have struggled with figuring out kind of how to do attribution and the rest. And so I've just seen a lot of tension come out. You just a lack of efficiency because it seems like when the clinicians and the payers have a, an arrangement, like, you know, I've heard people when I did BPCI saying, well, you're going to reduce my volume because you're not going to have readmissions to, and I was like, well, isn't that a good thing? And they'd say, no, because that's how I get paid. So it's this three-legged approach and we have to find a way to kind of unite those. And I do think oftentimes, and I'll talk to the docs in the group because this is Pemba, that the docs groups have not really done a great job of advocating for and taking a forward position and managing this and therefore tend to be the third leg of the stool that hasn't kind of been part of the crew. 
So it's my view of kind of what's been struggling for so long in healthcare. Um, as I move along, so let's just talk about the basics. And so it's this is a super basic version and you know, hopefully it's not too basic for everybody, but you have this dichotomy of healthcare in 2021, who's here in 2020, was here in 2019, it's been there forever. We live on the left. We get paid in a fee-for-service environment. All of you have groups. You get paid for every visit you see. Maybe you have some incentives here and there. But if volume goes down, less volume, less revenue, less payment, that's how it goes. So we live in fee-for-service. We want to move to this value-based arrangement, which, again, I told you I get a little tired of that term, but this you know, outcomes-driven component. How we work back and forth has been the challenge. Because in order to win in one, you might you're going to sacrifice the other and vice versa. So fee-for-service is exactly that. You get paid for every service you do, whether you necessarily, whether it should happen or not. So readmission, you take care of someone, you send them home, they come back in, you get paid again. Could you imagine taking your car to the shop and you have the radiator fixed and then you go home and three weeks later the radiator broke and you went back and they said oh, we got to pay for a whole new radiator again we would all have a stroke we'd be like oh, i'm not paying for that you but in our fee-for-service environment you literally treat someone for heart failure they go home they get readmitted you get paid again um and when you put it in basic terms it's frustrating uh fee-for-service is minimal risk and i'm not saying malpractice risk but it is risk in terms of pay to providers, your risk in the fee-for-service world is volume goes down. If you were an ER doc or an anesthesi anesthesiologist in COVID, it was pretty risky because volume went down. Common fee-for-service arrangements, commercial, straight commercial payment. In other words, Blue Cross or United, they just pay you per click. Straight Medicare, straight Medicaid, or self-pay if you get paid. As you move into value-based arrangements, and there's so many of them out there, it's it's overwhelming. It's like this nonstop alphabet soup. The goal of that is, is there's increasing risk to the provider. Risk is, is that you have to take some upside and some downside. You do a really good job, you can make some more money. You do a bad job, you lose money. Most providers are risk averse and basically wanna get paid what they're paid today. And then if they do extra good, they get a bonus. So there are all sorts of examples of value-based arrangements. I kind of rank these just super basic, which is like different buckets and then kind of how the risk works. So you've got like bundles or case rates. So bundles, I get paid a flat amount for a, a heart failure case or a case rate says, Hey, you know, I had a big arrangement that we did and we got paid the same. We got to pay a certain amount to admit every patient whether they were there for a day, a week, or a month, whether they were an inpatient, an observation, or they we sent them to a sniff. So th those are ones where you're basically, you know, some doc would be like, well, what if there's a long stay? I'm like, okay, that's the risk. But what if there's a short stay? That's the upside. ACOs or cannibal care organizations, uh, there's a million different types. I will tell you that they still confuse the hell out of me because if I try to sit down and tell a doc or a nurse practitioner that if you do these three things, you're going to make this many dollars. It's harder to do. Bundles, you could kind of say that. Like BPCI, you could say you get $10,000 for this bundle. Current rate, if you do everything right, you get, you know, it costs you 8,500. So you make 1,500 bucks. But if they get readmitted, 
it's another 8,500 and you went upside down. Capitation getting even more challenging, which is, you know, you get paid a per member per month for every member you have. So you gotta be much more sophisticated at managing. And those have all these adjustments that go into them, which make them go up and down, MLRs and all this other stuff. And then you get into these folks that just do full blown risk where they, you know, big primary care groups will just say, you know what, I'll just take a certain amount of premium and I'll just handle it all myself. Increasing risk as you move down, but I would also tell you increasing flexibility as you move. So the more risk you take, the more flexible you get, the more added services you can bring because you're not trying to charge someone to send a nurse to a home or send a pharmacist out to do a med rec. You pay for that knowing that if you prevent a readmission, you save a bunch of money and it works itself out. And so I'm a super risk tolerant individual. I know you all did the risk tolerance uh, scales. Well, I'm assuming you did. Remember, it's 14 years since I did PEMBA. But if you did your risk tolerance scales, I broke the scale because I was so risk tolerant. And then there's others that are, you'll have to learn where you wiggle. So as you look at this kind of crazy dichotomy of healthcare and you go back to this component here, you're like, how do I take fee for service, which there's dollar signs in every single one of these components, and then move it into, if I get the patient from the left to the right, the best way, I make money. And that's really where things are starting to change, which is like, how do I get people through there in a way that leads to the best outcome? Because I can reduce the total amount of dollar signs being used. But if I do a really good job, I can make some more money. But I'm also going to make other people lose money. And then they get that, that becomes one of the challenges out there is, is that it becomes this. The system is kind of one of those, you know, not, you know, zero sum competition components where you'll have those balances back and forth. So I always ask people like, why, if you look at all this, people want to be cared for in the home. I mean, I'd want to, and I think most of you all would want to. Um, it's cheaper and there's opportunity. So why don't we do it? And I would just say that the reality is, and I'll just use SNF. SNF is just easier. Like it's just, I know we must have a few hospitalists on the call here. It's just easier, right? So hospitals, which is the, the substantial component of the expense in here and the drivers for so many programs, especially with hospitals programs where they're subsidizing them. Hospitals are focused on length of stay and discharge times. If I had to hear one more time about discharges by 11 a.m., I would say my hair would fall out, but I have no hair to pull out. Um, you know, we're not running, I've really struggled with that metric because we're not running the, the Marriott where we're trying to get everybody out and do a full clean of the beds and get them back out. But it's this whole idea, people are really focused on that. And that's really driven by payment models and capacity constraints. Everyone's trying to figure out how to manage that. And if you think about why that exists, it's not necessarily their fault, but if I want to send someone to a PAC facility, let's say it'd be a SNF. It's pretty, like, when I was in hospitals, it was pretty easy. You make one call, I need a patient to go to a SNF, they need 57 different services, the case manager or discharge planner would get them accepted, and off they would go. So one authorization, one phone call, I write PT is there, nursing is there, IV is there, pharmacy is there, everything's there. In other words, it's all just there for the patient, the hospital bed. And then from you know the perspective of the discharging doc, there's far less risk, right? Because I give 
my patients off to Max and Max is my post-acute doctor and Max picks them up. Now it's Max, I mean, not to be sarcastic, but now it's Max's problem and my risk is mitigated. But if I wanna send people home with services, it can be complex. You know, there's multiple authorizations. So if someone needs to go home, I need a bed, I need a commode, I need a walker, they need a nurse to see them three times, they need a PT and an OT visit to help rehab them. And then they need certain meds they need to fill in time. I mean, that's like, a, think about all the paperwork we have to do. And if you look at that, there's reasons why people tend to go into SNFs and PAC facilities because it's just easier. And then there's this whole idea of transitional care, which is just when in that handoff, who owns the risk? I'm the hospitalist, I send them out, or I'm the surgeon, I send them out. They haven't been seen in the outpatient world. And it's just a challenge. And so I think when you look at those, trying to figure out how to move people is trying to simplify it. Um, it, is, it is very complex in terms of trying to get all those different components done. You know, when I used to work on behalf of the payers, we had these great coordinators and I'll talk about them in a minute. Like they would call me up before I even got to the hospital and say, oh, this patient we think can go home and I've got a bed set up and this, this, this and that and all the stuff's in the front of the chart if you're good to go. Now I'm aging myself, right? Because I said chart, not electronic. But nonetheless, I could write my order and everything was ready to go. So it really worked. So I think as you think about that, you know, what drives behavior and, and how do you start to manage that kind of mess of after the hospital? And it's really in it, the what's in it for me. Again, I mean, what's in it for me is a huge component. And when I came to CareCentrics, I did have a pretty, you know, long conversation with some of the models we built. I'm like, I don't know if that works. And so I'm a big believer in thinking about you know, for those of you who've done net promoter scores, your promoters, your detractors, and your neutrals, but this whole idea of a stakeholder grid. So you think of all your stakeholders in, in a, in a post-acute, and I'm really, this is again, focusing on post-acute, I'm not doing primary care in this conversation, but it's a similar idea. You've got patients, you've got families and their caregivers, you've got the hospitals, you've got the acute, the clinicians in the acute care environment, the discharge planners, the PAC facilities, home health, PCPs, the payers, there's a lot of people that have their fingers in the pie, right? And they have things that they all value. So, you know, when I do this live, we actually kind of go through and start filling it out. Kevin figured out how to do this electronically, but patients want to get the, the best care that they can get. They want answers as fast as they can get them. They don't want to go back in the hospital. They want to feel safe and feel like they're getting better. And they're looking for like, you know, what do I have to do with that? You know, hospitals are, I've got a certain amount of capacity I'm trying to manage. I'm trying to manage length of stay. You know, don't tell me that I can send a patient home in two days and skip a sniff stay, but you're going to add to my length of stay here when I'm on a DRG, right? You know, pack facilities are like, give me volume because I need volume. Give me volume. I'll take whatever I can get. So all these folks have different things that make them that they look to for value that drives value and revenue and helps them either marketing or growth, things that are bad. And then there's opportunities for where you can start to lever those. Your goal, if you get into this um, environment, I wouldn't say game, but if you get into doing this, you have to do as much as you can in the value bucket with as few detractors as possible. Because if you go in and start taking too many of the detractors, you're going to get 
no one's gonna you're gonna get roadblocks everywhere. So it is a bit of a it is a bit of a weave of trying to figure out how to help people get home while also like in a hospital, if we can work with the hospital and try to do as much as we can to kind of redirect care to the home and help set up home health. But the, t the trade-off is, is that I'm gonna give them the authorizations for their SNFs as fast as possible so that those that do have to go will have the shortest length of stay. Those are the kind of back and forths you have to kind of figure out as you go forward. Stakeholder grids for whatever you do, whether you do value-based or anything else, I think is hugely important because if you don't know where, if you go in and everything you wanna do is detractors for the rest of the stakeholders, you are dead in the water. So helpful to do, <coughs> um, it's, a, it's a little bit of a, of a kind of a breakout session I've done with folks and it's amazing the number of buckets we come up with in that stakeholder grid. So here's my kind of running list of, um, critical issues to consider beyond just the what's in it for me, how people get paid drives the behavior. So I was actually just on this uh, round table with the folks from IBM Watson and had a bunch of people from Abbott Labs and um, Merck and a bunch of big companies. And we were talking about data management and everybody's all into AI, artificial intelligence. And that's like the new buzzword. But I'm super critical of this, this whole myth of interoperability, this whole idea that, you know, Epic and Cerner, we're all going to talk to each other and everybody would know everything. It's just, it's just a painful, painful, painful myth that is just gummed up all the works. And, you know, we work on behalf of payers and want to get information on patients so we can prevent readmissions and do all the right things. And, you know, I can go to a hospital and say, I won't pick on any particular hospitals. Go to a hospital, hospital, I'll use St. Mary's because there's like 5,700 of them in this country, right? The St. Mary's hospital, I need uh, um, EMR access for my nurses so I can help get discharge a patient. No, well, it, no, because they don't want to have another person in their system or, hey, I need to, to integrate those programs. Well, it, it doesn't work. So interoperability, I think, has been just a huge, huge, huge challenge in terms of even getting records from a post-acute, from an acute building. If you, any of you have all ever gone out to a SNF and tried to see what they have for medical records there, it's, it's pretty limited. So that myth of interoperability is just such a challenge, for, in my opinion, one of the biggest challenges is if you're going to try to take patients out of that kind of cash register mix of moving through the system, you got to know where they are and you got to know what happened to them so that you can plan for how to deal with it. Big challenge. I don't know how to solve that. I feel like I'm complaining like I just have a lecture and just kind of like make this big statement, like throw up on the screen, like interoperability. But it's something we as a group have to, to figure out. Clinician risk tolerance is another one. Obviously, I was a big hospitalist guy working for Team Health. Um, there's a bunch of different specialties in PEMBA when you look at your risk tolerance, you know, like ER docs and hospitalists tend to have different risk tolerances and everybody tends to have different ways of looking at it. I would tell you that the groups that do really, really well in this kind of value-based arrangements, the, the Chen Meds, the DeVitas, the healthcare partners, the Geisinger folks, Kaiser, those folks have learned to tolerate greater sense of risk, a little bit more of the unknown because they have 
they have better systems to support them. But understanding the risk tolerance of your clinicians is key. We had, we, I did a lot of work in South Flor Southeast Florida, so Fort Lauderdale, Miami area. And we had two different types of program there. One that we worked for the payers, in which the docs were all on a case rate and or capitation. And, you know, it wasn't seven on, seven off, and it didn't have all this other stuff. The docs that worked in that program could never work in a hospital-based program that was seven on, seven off with all the other stuff. They short-circuited. And if I took one from the other, I took one of those docs and moved it into the other program, even if they were in the same building, they couldn't do it. So you have to understand your clinician risk tolerance and how to manage that. Biggest components here are kind of, when I say bridging the gap, which is how do I get from here to there, which is there is a, there is a voltage drop that occurs between the hospital and getting back into primary care. And how we manage that is really key. Uh, readmissions is a huge problem. I have a lot of, you know, a lot of debate with folks about what's preventable, not preventable. What's the, you know, what's the, may sound harsh, but like, what's the patient's fault? What's someone else's fault? Like, they didn't fill their medicines. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> but trying to figure out how to support those and navigate through those areas is really key. Regulatory limitations are just enormous. I've always kind of struggled with this whole idea of if you're in a hospital and you've been really sick, and someone says, you have to go to a sniff, which you don't really want to do. And they give you a list and they say, pick one. And because we're not supposed to give people, we're not supposed to guide them because of all the kickback stuff. And I understand that we don't want a kickback. You go to a hotel that you've never been to before and you want to go out to dinner, you don't just randomly go look. You ask the concierge, you ask someone else, you, you Google it, you, you, know, you try to get some information there. And so I think some of the regulatory limitations out there, especially around as you start to manage risk, if you're trying to manage risk for patients and they do have to go to a facility, you don't want to have to manage patients in 22 different nursing homes around your hospital. You want to have one or two that you know are really good, that you have relationships with, where you put people at, that you can support them. And you have to be able to direct that. But our Regulatory limitations are a challenge around that. I think BPCI was a challenge. We wanted to manage kind of a bundle, but we had all those kind of, we were saying two things at the same time, like get your patients to the right place and you know do the right job, but don't tell them where to go. Um, it's a sarcastic view, but that those two areas haven't aligned. And then finally, non-medical interventions are an enormous, enormous component that I cannot discount. I can't stress enough to everybody here. We have a nurse coach program in my, that we manage. Uh, we probably have a thousand or so active patients in it at any one point in time. 66% of our interventions are non-medical. They are on two basic areas, travel, getting you know, to appointments and all those other components. And believe it or not, food, like getting access to food that they need or getting fed. You know, people will make decisions on meds versus food. I got to cook dinner. I'm not picking up my prescriptions. 66%. It's pretty remarkable. And you got to think about those non-medical interventions. If you go back to that fee-for-service cash register spider web that I did there, nowhere in there does it say I can pay people for food or for rides. Um, for those that live in areas with big Medicare Advantage plans, like, you know, I live in, like I said, I live in South Florida, there's lots of them. There's a bus for every, like, 
the Vita or healthcare partners or Humana or Molina, all these, like they drive patients back and forth to appointments and it's really key. Uh, moving on, so there's been a big rise in risk management companies uh, or care management companies. Um, companies like where I came from, CareCentric. I don't want to be the, the first person interrupting you, but can you go back to the previous slide? Because I, I thought it was very informative. This is this is Max Sungro. Hey, uh, just wanted to see if you have any good examples of, uh, you, you have a great a term you use, uh, vol a voltage drop when it comes from hospitalists to, uh, to primary care. Do you have any good examples or any thought how those things work? Because I think it's a, this, the disconnect happens right there, right in that spot. And anybody that's, doing it? Right? Yeah, that's where I was getting to. And that's this whole idea of like having a, having someone that's an ad, like almost, you know, an advocate, someone that kind of, how many of you all get calls from family members or friends to be like, hey, can you help me with this? I don't understand this. It's trying to tie those pieces together, they get lost. So one of our, we just had an example the other day. So we had a patient get discharged from a hospital with a midline pick mm -hmm. and IV antibiotics and no appointment with their PCP for five weeks. And so Great. we're like, it, it, the things that make the interventions are the, the simplest. Um, and it's trying to, it's, it's, there's a, such a disconnect between acute and, and primary care and trying to, trying to figure out how to tie those together is really the, what I think we spend the majority of our time doing. Gotcha. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, of course. So big companies like ours, I might've made our logo bigger than others just for fun. Uh, Signify, Evercore, MyNexus, NaviHealth, um, all have been in the news um, because they've either been bought by Optum or gone public or bought by Anthem. I mean, a lot of interest in this. And this is this whole idea of, like as Max asked, like, how do you do that? We literally try to nat, our goal is to have, we have nurses and we do UM, which to me is kind of like the boring part of my job, but we try to navigate our access to home health, nurses, coaches on insight or uh, in-market liaisons that know those areas to literally just kind of help guide people, leave little crumbs along the way to kind of guide where we need to go. And that's what big companies like ours kind of focus on. I'm gonna I've been talking a little too circuitously. So I'm gonna go a little faster, so make sure I hit these. So these are some of the levers for reducing costs in the PAC space. So this is PAC utilization. So these are metrics you'll see. So SNF, ERF, LTAC. So stays per thousand, very common public health, you know, uh, pop health metric and direction. So if your stays per thousand in the sniffer high, you really wanna get people home with home health. And then you have length of stay. So that's what I, you can all manage on kind of utilization management, you'll, you'll get so far. But if you look at the length of stay for Medicare, really good Medicare Advantage plans, they're down under 14 days for a stiff length of stay because they get paid one sum. In Medicare fee-for-service, the length of stay is 26 or 28 days because they're getting paid for every day. And then days per thousand is just a multiple of stays and length of stay. So you really, you have two levers to work with. Can you keep people out of the higher cost facilities? And then if they're there, can you shorten them? Readmission management is a big area that we talk about, which is um, a lot of metrics are moving from 30 days to 90 days. That was driven a lot by um, the BPCI program, but that was also driven by metrics that showed that, you know, 50% of our costs were in the, the 30 to 90 day range. Two metrics we look at there are readmits per thousand. That's a population health metric. 
it's affected by total admissions and the rest. And then you get into readmit rate. It's a little more complicated because it's hard to kind of risk adjust. And then you get into this whole idea of different metrics. So readmission of someone that went home after an acute hospitalization is one rate. Readmission after someone that went from a PAC facility back to an ER. And then there's readmissions from home that, that are home after a PAC stay to go back to the ER. So there's all different kind of different ways of looking at those. And those are all different cost points and they all require different interventions. So someone that goes home after an, uh, an acute stay has one intervention. You got to get them right when they go home. Someone that's been in a sniff for, and then goes back to the ED, that's an intervention you got to work on the pack, like with the facility on. So it's all different areas and all different levers you work through. And then home health is really moving much, again, moving towards this outcome basement, uh, basis, like this concept of PDGM, patient-driven groupings model, terrible name for it. Um, it makes gives me a headache because we all we do is talk about it, right? But this whole idea of instead of me paying you to see every patient as many times as you want and just keep swiping the ATM, you got to have an outcome. So those are levers for the reducing costs. So here's my thoughts on strategies on this. And then I'm going to run through some COVID stuff and I'll leave it open to questions. So you got to, this is not like stop using SNFs or stop using LTACs or stop using ERFs or S. Think about, we. I stole this kind of slogan a little bit from Team Health. We had this, uh, you know, right, it was this whole, I forget, and I'm blanking on how we used it. <laughs> it was the right, right account, right contract, right terms, like this whole idea of like, don't just agree to one thing. This is the idea of like, have the right patient, put them in the right place at the right time. The super sick patient that's been in and out of the hospital a million times that, you know, lives alone on the third floor that, you know, has a walker and, you know, has got, that may not be the case you want to send home. But the patient that plays golf twice a week, that lives on the first floor on a one family, you know, one floor apartment, whose wife lives there and both their kids live in town, that had, you know, a three-day hospitalization for pneumonia that, like, those, that's the one that goes home, right? So just got to think about that. Like, where do they come from? What's the right place? Navigator and advocate, which I think Max asked me about, which is someone that helps guide people through that. I'm sure every single one of you gets texts and phone calls from family members, friends, people you don't even know, wanting advice on like, do I need to, like, does this rash look okay? Do I need stitches here? Oh, the doctor says I need to have this procedure. Do I have to have it? It's this whole idea of being uh, the advocator and, and kind of working with patients. I say early identification, early intervention. Most of the things we try to do are too late. If you're trying to get a patient home after the whole system has kind of got them requested to go to a SNF, very hard to do. It's like the whole idea of like, I, you know, you know, Kate's got a plan to go to the beach, right? She's going to Florida, she's gonna to go to the beach. And I'm like, oh, Kate, I know you have your tickets booked and the hotel reservation and all your bags packed, but the skiing is going to be really good. You should go over there. You're like, I'm not doing that. So going into a hospital and trying to get people to change what they're doing, you've got to get, if you're going to try to work with patients, you got to get them right away. I would argue you got to get them like in the ER. So when the ER doc says you're going to come in and spend 10 days and go out to a skilled nursing facility. And then I come in and say, Oh, we're going to discharge you tomorrow it's really hard to do. Uh, if you're going to, 
make a difference in uh, interventions on readmissions, you got to do it by 48 hours. Because if you wait till five days, you've missed what you do. I see, I told you I was on a call with the IBM Watson people. We have so much data, like even our company, we have data like everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. So much of it, I don't even know what to do with it. If someone says the word Tableau to me one more time, my head's going to pop. Because we have so much data in Tableaus, we don't know what to do about. We need actionable data. So you need to know when a patient gets admitted, you know, what their risk factors are. You need to know when they're discharged so that you can actually capture them when they go home. But if you don't find out because you don't get an alert till three days later, you've missed. So I see a lot of data out there. AI is big. Everyone's all about data. It's hard to get, but make sure it's actionable. I would tell you that if you're working in this environment, distill your data down, make it simple, like super, super, super simple so that everybody looks at it and says, okay, I know what I've got and this is what I should do about it. Um, I say avoid the shiny new toys. I'm sure you all get 8 million, for those of you on LinkedIn, like I have to mute the alerts on my LinkedIn because everybody that's selling some new whiz bang gadget application, phone, there's there's a thou thousands of them. I, I was at a talk with the Avia folks who kind of look at those. And there's something like, I forget, $2.6 billion per year pumped into new kind of just startup ones alone. We don't need any more shiny gadgets. We have enough difficulty trying to manage what we have. So avoid those, stick to the real simple stuff. Like I said, a lot of the interventions we make for patients are rides. You know, give them an Uber, just like they're trying to do for vaccinations. But in general, I use the easy button. If you wanna be navigating people through ERs and hospitals and SNFs, make it easy for everybody. If you lay out the plan and have everything ready to go so you can guide them there, you'll be able to take and manage risk. So it's this whole idea to be successful. You got to get in early, identify the right people, no shiny glitzy things, just be actionable and make things easy for folks so that they want to work with you. So COVID, um, obviously, we've been talking a lot about this, but here we go. Cumulus spending has been rising. You'll see big drops predicted. We saw kind of a big kind of movement, but drops overall, even after the rebound. So we had this kind of huge kaboom, the world hit pause in March and April. Some parts of the world like Florida opened up sooner, other parts of the world are opening up slower, but in general, kind of nursing homes have been down, hospitals down, physician costs are down, elective surgeries canceled. It's kind of the obvious stuff. Home health rose and it's continued to rise. So we're seeing that really gave a big shock, but it really showed that home health was moving there. You'll see these are some market trends that you'll that I pulled together, which shows March, April, May. Just you know, we saw a substantial rise of home health right across the board, and so we're just seeing more interest in home health. Nobody wanted to go to a nursing home, especially after all that was going on in the news. It was just catastrophic to the system, the nursing home, I think the nursing home industry, although they've rebounded, I don't know that they'll ever be the same and how they manage patients there. Uh, there's been a number of cases along the way as that comes forward. Um, virtual care, which I talked about, which this just showed kind of virtual visits pre post um, COVID, you'll see Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, the boomers, huge increase in the boomers and in the older generations, just big increases. People always say like, you know, the older patients don't want to do that. Like, I don't I, like my parents are really good with their, like, they, I think 
text more than I do. So I think there's a lot more interest coming there. You'll see rise across the board, everything from um, ongoing uh, follow-ups, post-op, all being moved into more of the virtual, the virtual space. I really, really hope that we don't fall backwards like everything else, like the regulatory things will come along. You know, people can't figure out how to get paid for telemedicine because they made it so difficult. We'll just drift backwards. This happened because people, the government made regulatory changes around state licensure and payment models so people could actually work and get paid in the model. So we saw a big increase in it. So I hope it continues. And this is an interesting slide from kind of kind of how impact impacted these different organizations are going to be based on kind of how they felt pre-COVID, like what COVID did to them. And I think we're going to see more of a rise in the physician clinician group. Even people that were previously like, I'm not doing that. I just pay me on my fee for service world. I think when the volume took a little bit of a dip, people were like, well, I can do a better job and I can do more. I think the big groups, like we see a lot, I talk a lot about ChenMed because they're big in Florida and I know some folks that work over there and you know, I've been impressed with what they've done. They've just doubled down on their approach. Like, they're, hey, we've got a big Medicare Advantage plan. We already know about ER diversions and home health and taking care of patients and keeping them healthy. And they just double down. And so you've seen growth there. You'll see that the big ones that I, that I think are the ones that really just struggle with it are really health hospitals and health systems. And there I see them just, they struggle with it. You know, how do I manage it? How do I have attribution? I've got all this overhead. I bought a bunch of physician groups and they're all losing money. I don't know what, to, like, I think that they're really just focused on those. And I think that that will be a challenge for the, the health system hospital kind of building side of component. I think the physician groups really have an opportunity here to step forward and start. It's better to volunteer than be voluntold. So I think people start looking at how do I start incrementally taking risk? Because then you can set the terms for it before someone just makes you do it. And that I think is the opportunity. So that's my view of COVID. I think I'm right about five minutes for questions. I know that they're hard to do. Hopefully this, I didn't drone on too much and y'all found it interesting, but um, ask questions if I can be of help. Um, if you don't wanna ask them here, just email me or, or hunt me down. Um, I, I always love staying in touch with all my Pemba alums. I've hired many, still meet, still meet up with people on the road. We have questions, Jason, we have questions. Um, I may not have answers. Well, we, we don't always need answers. We just need to raise the questions. You mentioned there are so many different aspects of this that I find absolutely um, uh, interesting. And I think particularly for our PEMBA folks, they need to understand exactly how these kinds of interactions are going to be occurring in the future. You mentioned that your favorite term, value-based purchasing. I use that term a lot, quite honestly, because it's it's the new uh, buzzword and it really replaces the whole idea of capital. It doesn't replace the idea, it replaces the term capitation, which had a very negative connotation for so long. Yeah. So uh, my, and, and let me get to my question. And the question is, 
when we move into a value-based purchasing environment, Medicare is really pushing it big time now. And Medicaid managed care will be pushing it not too long from now. Uh, some of them already are. <clears throat> but do you see us moving toward a single payer system in which we have value-based purchasing in which provider groups, we're seeing consolidation of provider groups are they going to be in a capitated or value-based purchasing environment? How do you see the future shaping up? Oh, that's an interesting one. I don't think we get to a single payer system. I think there's just not, I think there's just too many challenges or not anytime in the near future. Um, I think health plans are gonna have to be more focused on alternative payment structures with clinicians. I think if the health plans can do a really good job with MA and uh, Medicare Advantage manage Medicaid, I think there's a lot of growth opportunity there. I'm interested to see if direct contracting comes back around because you know got kind of hit the pause button there and the appetite for physician groups to do that. I think that it'll really change. I think I'm kind of wondering on my answer. So no, I don't think single payer. I think exactly how we're going to get paid has changed. I'm a fan of kind of bundles and direct contracting type model over ACOs because they're a little bit more straightforward. I do think we're going to see the rise of the, you know, we've already seen the rise of the pay provider, as I call them, the payer providers, you know, yeah. and that's where I see it going. I see the, you know, the Optums and the Kaisers and the rest. And I could see a pay provider kind of merging together into a kind of a direct contracting entity and then moving it that way. But I think we'll have different pay, different payment models, which will continue to be confusing. And they can get together and really manage this key. Any other questions? Hey, Jason, uh, uh, great talk. Honestly, enjoyed. Uh, uh, this is Max. I wanted to see what, what are you guys using for remote monitoring? What do you find working? Um, we don't do, I don't do, I don't specifically do remote monitoring in my program right now. Mm -hmm. Um, we do remote monitoring for some of our specific programs. Like we have a sleep program. We use an, uh, this, an eye comply, uh, functionality to it. So people always ask me, I actually have a meeting tomorrow. I'm actually up in Connecticut going to meet with some folks about remote monitoring tomorrow. Um, I think remote monitoring for very specific patient populations for very specific programs will work well. I think there's so much basic blocking and tackling and simple stuff we can do that we have so much, to, it, like that's why I say avoid the shiny new toys. I think the majority of the work we can do is like super basic and we don't need remote monitoring with the exception of certain patient populations that I would put it in. But I wouldn't go give patients a whole bunch of stuff and then we'd have to figure out what to do with, that's again, like, what do I do with that? Until we get really good at tying things together, I wouldn't add to an already chaotic system. That's my editorial view. I mean, thanks. So another question, I, I've got so many questions, Jason, we could go another hour, but we're not gonna do that, I promise. But another question I have is the use of analytics in what you do. You mentioned the Tableau is a four letter word for you, but Quite honestly, I think a lot of care management companies would die on the vine. Uh, hi, Jason. Uh, this is Jorge. Can you hear me? You're a little Say broken what? up. 
Is that Tom? That was Jorge. Oh, Jorge. Don, let me answer your question. So data and analytics, um, we just have too much of it. And, you know, it's great. I just want to get it simple so that people know what to do with it because they're kind of overwhelmed by it. And that's my only point. We're just increasing data points and we just have yep. to manage it. We use a lot of predictive. We actually have a bunch of data scientists and the data scientists are there to help me predict who's at risk for readmissions, who's the highest probability to go home. If someone comes in with certain diagnosis, what services can I set them up with at home? Merely for the fact of then if I can catch that early, I can start to, I can actually go, instead of waiting, I can actually go to a discharge burn and say, oh, your patient in 302 came in with this, you know, we think, you know, they've shown that we can send them home and here's an approval for all the things you need and the roadmap is all set up. So we're doing a lot more with that. And, and that what I like about predictive analytics is you have to have the ability to do something with it. So if you don't have a system built to intervene, you could be like, well, I got this great score and you go to a hospital and they're like, I, well, I don't know what to do with that. If you have a score and then have a process that can then, make a change, that's what the key is. Gee, quality improvement, who'd have thought? Yeah. Jorge, did you have a question? I'm sorry I stepped on you there. No, no problem, Don, thank you. I mean, I think that was a, a great uh, discussion. I don't know if you can hear me because I may not have the best signal, but uh, the question that I have, definitely accessibility right now, especially to the high-risk population, is one of the main challenges nowadays in the current healthcare. Now, when we have a managed care, especially Medicaid, which definitely has more uh, impact on, uh, of the social determinants of care, and additionally to that, the lack of buy-in to the physicians, have you seen any benefit of having transitional care clinics that will facilitate accessibility, especially to the high-risk members? After, after doing an effective restratification. Uh, that is part two of my meeting tomorrow uh, where we're talking specifically on high risk patients and LT, like the LTSS population. I absolutely think a navigator coordinator that bridges the gap. Um, one of my jobs that I had, I've had a lot of different jobs, <laughs> no, I, different roles, very few employers. How about that? Um, I worked at a fairly qualified community health center a long time ago and pre-PEMBA, so it was a while ago. And we were doing pop health before we knew it was pop health. And the most valuable people we had there were the advocates. And they they took care of 90%. I'm trying to more that model. I mean, I used to, we used to do group diabetes visits 20 plus years ago. And like the nutritionist and the advocate would actually take our patients to the stores and teach them what to buy. So I, that's my long-winded way of saying, I think that's the role that a lot of companies like myself, like us and Signify and Navi are all trying to get into is being that coordinator that ties things together. Um, so yes, you absolutely have to. And I don't, and people always ask me what, what I don't, that person, I don't think has to be a nurse. Definitely. I don't think an NP, I, I mean, I, we view, we're looking, you know, social workers. I mean, you name it. Um, people to live in their communities. I think there's a lot more support we have to bring. Yeah. And just one last thing, Jason. In, in my case, I mean, I, I'm working exactly the same. I have multiple roles. Now I'm responsible for managed care with Humana. 
a specific health plan. And to be honest, we address the uh, interoperability with health information exchange, which actually here in the state of California is promoted by, by the uh, health department. But my main challenge is to uh, align physicians to understand that sooner than later, they should jump in this uh, value-based model. And, but definitely that has been probably the, the main, main challenge. Actually, we physicians, don't understand exactly what is the fusion in healthcare. Uh, so, I, I, I mean, I heard that from you as well, but, but just want to express that that's my main, main challenge in this, in this process of transformation. I totally agree. I actually say that, well, I always have a, like my blunt statement. So I like, there's two types of doctors in the world, those that want to be in a hospital and those that never want to see one, right? There's like, that's one of the divisions. And then there's really kind of doctors that are really good at managing risk. Like we had groups and those that just can't wrap their brain around it. We as leaders have to start to figure out how to get people bent out of that mindset on the fee-for-service world. You can actually see less people have better outcomes and make more, like they make more money, right? Which is, <laughs> and they're really happy in those models. Um, and it's, it's just a different mindset. Um, so yes, totally agree. We just have to be the ones that push on it. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Guys, I, I think we probably better wrap it up or we're going to probably have to pay Zoom more money or something. Yeah. I hate to get mad at me. Jason, well, I, I can't thank you enough. I, this, this was terrific, and I know you've piqued a lot of interest here. Um, my hope is maybe we can do another session like this in the future and yeah, maybe have some, more, have some more questions that really stump you maybe. I but, would love to. And if you guys need anything, just reach out in the interim. It was a pleasure. Can you get those slides, some of those slides, Jason? I, some of them were awesome, actually. Yeah, uh, I think Tom, Tom has them. You can send them right out. You're welcome yeah. to them all. Thanks a lot, man. Nice background, too, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. I, was, I, I did that for you all. All right. With that, I will let you all go. Have a great night. Thank you, everybody. Good to see you, Jason. Thank you. Thanks, so everyone. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you.